Welcome to Dispatches, the official podcast for the Journal of the American Revolution. The Journal of the American Revolution publishes weekly online at www.allthingsliberty.com. For the latest in research, reviews, and commentaries, America's Most Important History is available free of charge at the Journal of the American Revolution. So it tells us a few things. One, it, it tells us that uh, the founders uh, were not omniscient. They were not perfect. They did all sorts of things. Th- this among them that even they didn't understand or, or conceive of what the ramifications were. That's Professor Andrew Shockett discussing his new article, analyzing one of the greatest questions of the 18th century. In the new America, who mattered? And he's our guest today. I'm Brady Kreitzer, and this is Dispatches. This episode is sponsored by the Museum of the American Revolution, exploring the ideas, events, and legacies of America's revolutionary beginnings. Plan your visit today. For more information, visit www.amrevmuseum.org. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome back to another episode of Dispatches. I'm your host, Brady Kreitzer. On today's episode, we sit down and talk with Professor Andrew Shockett about a big question that's plagued early Americans and one that we're still trying to work out the kinks of today. According to the Constitution, who matters? We have this movement that's been around in America for most of the last hundred years uh, of people who always talk about the infallibility of the American Constitution. Uh, as though the document's never been changed. And one of the biggest ways that detractors of that argument show that change has happened over the last 250 years uh, has been that, according to the original document, the interpretation of citizenship, that was to say who was a voter that mattered, has changed a great deal. Now, I'm not talking about uh, altering things through amendments uh, or or... Uh, anything controversial, I guess, on this episode. Um, obviously, the only politics we talk about are 18th century politics. Uh, but one of the things we have to understand is that in the formative years of this country, the debates around the Constitution continued long after the convention that we saw so famously in 1787. This is a wonderful article by Andrew Shockett and some of his students. And he talks openly about the role that his students played in both inspiring this article, helping to research the article, and ultimately helping to push the article through to propose it to the Journal of the American Revolution. It's a wonderful example of student and teacher synergy. So today we ask the big fundamental question. In the 1780s and 1790s, who was an American and who mattered? So sit back, relax, and enjoy our interview with Andrew Shockett. Andrew Shockett, thank you for joining us. Well, thanks for having me on. Tell us about your background. Well, uh, I was always interested in history. I was really lucky to have wonderful history teachers in high school, and I majored in history history in college. And then for a couple years, for a few years after uh, college, I was working in 
Washington, D.C., and uh, right near the mall, and often walking by the, the monuments. And it just made me think a lot about uh, how we think about current political, uh, economic structures, structures of, of power, and how we sort of naturalize them in the founding, often in ways we just don't really think about that much. And so it made me, it, it made me interested in thinking, okay, well, well, how do we know what we know <laughs> about the founding and, and how did it happen? Uh, and that's uh, what you know, drove me in, in a way uh, to, and a lot of the questions that continue to, to drive me. Uh, so I uh, went to uh, the College of William and Mary and got a, a history PhD and it was a wonderful place to be both, uh, well, for a lot of reasons because of uh, the, the faculty, uh, uh, fantastic uh, peers, and of course, being near Colonial Williamsburg and working, in fact, in Colonial Williamsburg, it, it helped me learn how to talk about history, not just to, uh, say, graduate students, but to, you know, and to academics, but, you know, to humans. And, uh, and I've been teaching at Bowling Green State University since 2001. What first drew your interest into this topic? So I was teaching a class on the American Revolution, an undergraduate class, and uh, we read an article, uh, this, this fantastic article, uh, sort of a seminal article by uh, historian Jan Lewis, uh, in which she argued that women are represented in the Constitution, but she was arguing it, thinking about James Wilson, who originally uh, wrote some of the, the language and, and how later in his, his uh, lectures, he talked about uh, the, pro the purpose of government being happiness and, and women being included in that. Um, so we were talking about this article in class and uh, one student, Colin Spicer, who uh, is a, a geography major and interested in partly in issues of representation and so forth, said, uh, yeah, but, but that didn't that also matter for representation for, you know, which congressional districts, you know, got how many, uh, you know, which states got how many uh, congressional members of Congress. And of course, uh, being, you know, having studied, uh, you know, the revolution for 25 years, I absolutely knew the answer, which was, of course, it didn't matter because, there, of course, would have been proportional to the men in each district. Uh, and another student, um, uh, Kinsey McLaren Chur, said, well, are you sure? Uh, and so we put the numbers on the board, and it turns out that actually including free women and children in addition to white men and uh, as you know, uh, as listeners of this podcast know, uh, three-fifths three of, uh, as they put it then, three-fifths of all other persons, in other words, three-fifths of the total number of enslaved people, uh, that actually, including women and children, did make a difference. And that was something new to me. And uh, we, we ended up working together for about a year, uh, researching it together and thinking through uh, what, what happened and, and trying to figure it out. Uh, and it was... Uh, 
it was a lot of fun. What do you feel is the biggest misconception regarding who mattered and who didn't in early America? Well, that, that's a, a great question. Actually, in some ways, that's recently, again, become a little bit a matter of historical interest, right? Like who, who, who was, uh, who was a citizen who counted, who, who mattered. Uh, and, uh, if you look at, uh, and, and we, we may end up talking more about this, of course, uh, if, if you look at, uh, state constitutions, uh, they all, they all, uh, emphasize, uh, white men either as voters or as property holders, um, or as you know, eligible to to, to uh, bear arms uh, for the the defense of the state. So um, this is a, a little a little different. I mean, what Jan Lewis argued is, well, yes, women and children were counted as part of this greater sense that they're sort of subjects of the state, but this suggests maybe a little bit more that that women and children were really considered in this case free women and children uh were considered part of the polity right that they, they were really considered uh Im- important to be counted for representation what was stated in article 1 section 2 clause 3 of the constitution and what did it change that's a that's a great question. So what I can do is first uh, actually read it uh, and then uh, explain it a little bit. So uh, Article One, Section Two, Clause Three reads: Representatives and direct taxes shall be apportioned among the several states which may be included within this union, according to their respective numbers which shall be determined by adding to the whole number of free persons, including those bound to a service for a term of years, and excluding Indians not taxed, three-fifths of all other persons. So what this did, uh, remember the, the Constitution replaced the Articles of Confederation, and in the Articles of Confederation, each state had one vote in Congress. They could send multiple delegates, but each state had each state delegation had one vote. And of course, one of the major uh, questions for uh, the Constitutional Convention was how to do representation. Uh, and uh, as many of us uh, learned in, in high school or, or maybe through uh, Schoolhouse Rock, uh, you know, there was this compromise uh, in which Congress. Uh, in which, well, the Senate would con- would would continue to work by state, except each state would get two votes, uh, and the House of Representatives would be uh, proportional in some way to the population of each state. And this is uh, and this is the clause that says, basically, here's who's going to be counted. Uh, and so uh, to sort of break that break that down uh, back into this language, according to the respective numbers, um, which shall be determined by adding the whole number of free persons. And so that's sort of the important part of this article, that it's not just free men, that it's 
the whole number of free persons. And in the original draft of the language, it was people, uh, quote, of every age, sex, and condition. Uh, include, and then the Constitution continues, including those bound to a service for a term of years. So in other words, they were counting people who were indentured servants, uh, but then excluding, so they weren't going to tax, they weren't going to include Indians not taxed, so uh, Native Americans who basically were not part of the polity. Uh, and then the last part, and the part that, uh, of course, is, is uh, most infamous, uh, three-fifths of all other persons. Uh, and, of course, if you think about who was in uh, the United States at the time, all other persons really meant enslaved people. And this is one of those examples of the framers clearly writing about enslaved people, but not using the word uh, slaves or word slaves or, or, or slavery. But, 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 this is, but, but this was a question, like who, who counts uh, for represent, representation? And, and that's what this clause does. You state that the Northwest Ordinance muddied things a bit. Uh, how so? Well, so the the clause that we just uh, that, that we just talked about uh, that's a great question about the the Northwest Ordinance. But the clause that we just talked about uh, indicates pretty clearly uh, that uh, all free people, all free, all free, uh, or all white people, more or less, would be would be counted, men, women, and children. Well, at the same time, the Constitutional Convention was meeting in Philadelphia. Remember that uh, the Articles of Confederation Congress was, was you know, meeting all the time, right? Uh, they were actually meeting uh, also in that summer. They happened to be uh, in New York. Uh, some people were uh, shuttling back and forth. There's uh, at least some suggestive evidence that that some members of Congress had an idea of what was going on in the Constitutional Convention, and some historians have argued that that these were partly written uh, with an eye toward each other. We're, we're not sure about that, but they were dealing in the Northwest Ordinance. They were dealing with some of the same sorts of issues. So the Northwest Ordinances, what they did was to say we're going to take this land that's basically north of the Ohio that's that's bounded by the Ohio River to the to the south and then the Great Lakes to the, to to the north and the, and the Mississippi to the west and uh, we're going to make new states out of them and so the question is when when do they when do they get like territorial governments meaning sort of provisional governments and, and when eventually to, do they get to be states well there. They, they counted differently than, than, than the framers of the Constitutional Convention met. So for establishing territories in the Northwest Ordinance, uh, it counted only adult white men. For, but for a territory to become a state, they counted all free inhabitants. And, and we're pretty sure in this context that that inhabitants means uh, means. Uh, men, women, and children. Uh, and now there's no, and you'll notice that there's nothing about counting enslaved people, and that's because Northwest Ordinance uh, banned slavery in those uh, in those uh, territories eventually to become states. But so at the same time that a group of men in 
Philadelphia is saying we're going to count white men, women and children, a group of very similar men uh, with, you know, similar education, background and so forth in New York are saying, well, we'll count men or maybe we'll count all people, you know, uh, so so these two things are, are going on at, at the same time. You've touched on this briefly already. Let's return to it. Uh, you've said that state constitutions were more clear on a lot of these matters. Um, what did you find in this regard? Sure. So uh, when declaring independence, most of the states had to or chose to write, write new constitutions of their own. Uh, now, a, a couple of them did not. So Rhode Island and Connecticut, basically, um, who, you know, elected where they're electing their own governors anyway, basically uh, put their put their uh, colonial charters in a word processor and, and did a search and replace for king. Uh, but the other states all wrote constitutions and they all in one way, in, in some way or another, had to deal with this question, too, which is, OK, so if the state grows or if the population in the state changes, how are we going to decide our legislative districts? And almost all of and they pretty much fall into two categories, I guess we should say. One is some decided to do it on the basis of who was eligible to vote. So there, they're counting white men. Some did it based on uh, head of household taxpayers. But there again, uh, you're primarily talking, you're really talking about, again, counting white men. Interestingly enough, one state did something where they also mixed mixed uh, how they counted uh, free white people and enslaved people. And that was South Carolina. And it's interesting because South Carolina had a somewhat similar pro problem to the constitutional framers because South Carolina had some areas, especially the uh, low country uh, uh, parishes, which is what, what they call what they called counties, uh, which were actually majority uh, enslaved people, and then other areas uh, inland that were uh, predominantly uh, free white people. And so they had to think about this. Okay, well, we have districts with, with uh, different proportions of, of people. And they, so, so what they did is wrote something so vague that they just said, okay, well, we'll count free people, but we'll also take into account people. Uh, so they try it. So rather than, but rather than actually figure out a formula, they just sort of uh, said that vaguely to leave it up to future, uh, you know, future legislatures. Uh, but, uh, but by and large, what the states did was to count white men so that, so that men, women, and children were counted federal level, at the federal level was really quite the innovation. This matter will see President George Washington exercise his veto for the very first time. It's a major moment in American political history. Could you talk about that event? Oh, ab absolutely. So 
so, you know, so we talked about, you know, the Constitution said, uh, you know, when you in the future, when you figure out uh, how to expand Congress, this is how you're going to do it. Well, in 1792, they had to do it uh, for the first time uh, and, and base uh, the next Congress on uh, the, the number of representatives for each state uh, on the results of the 1790 census. Uh, and, you know, and we think, oh, okay, well, the, the Constitution was specific, but as in many things, it turns out that the, that the Constitution gave rules that turned out to be vague and, as with many things in the first decade or two of governance, they had to they had to figure out exactly how to how to get something done. So Article one, Section two reads that the number of representatives shall not exceed one for every 30,000 uh, people counted. That is, you know, free people and three fifths of, of, of enslaved people. Um, so what happens if a state has 30,000 and one people? Do they get one representative or, or two? So what Congress did was um, they basically divided each state's population by 30,000 and gave the states who had the most people above, like once they divided the, the most people above that, uh, an extra representative. And, and Washington asked his cabinet about it, and they were about split down the middle. He asked all his cabinet members. Um, but Washington was convinced that the measure was unconstitutional. And, and this is sort of interesting that this is his first, first veto and it was on that basis because this is the one clause of the entire Constitution who's the, that the, the language of which was changed in the Constitutional Convention at Washington's request. So Washington, uh, the, some listeners may remember, he was president of the Constitutional Convention and he basically, you know, he pre presided over it but really didn't participate directly in any of it until just about the last day uh, when uh, the original proposal had been for 40,000, uh, one representative for up to 40,000 people. Uh, and he interjected and said it, he thought it should be 30,000. So this is something, this is one of the few things in the constitution that, that for whatever reason was something that, that Washington uh, was uh, really, uh, that there was really, you know, in his mind. Uh, so uh, he issued a, a veto. It was actually a really brief veto. It's only about 150 words. And it just says that giving any states more than one representative for, for, for every 30,000 counted makes the bill unconstitutional. And, and so uh, that uh, sent everybody back to the drawing board. Thomas Jefferson will devise a plan to solve this problem. Uh, what does he put forward? Sure. Uh, so Jefferson uh, was Secretary of State and, uh, and you know, so a member of the cabinet. He and, and actually uh, Hamilton also uh, put forward a, a somewhat less detailed plan, uh, but he suggested using 33,000 instead of 30,000 as the, the divisor. And when you do that with the census, basically you do that with all the states and you get almost no people left over. 
So that meant that there would not be more more than one representative for every 30,000 in in the count. Um, And uh, it was a plan that uh, that, you know, we can uh, that Washington liked. And so it was uh, sent to Congress and it pretty much uh, flew right through and Washington signed it pretty quickly. How does Jefferson's plan change the makeup of Congress? Uh, what does it look like afterwards? Well, uh, so up to then, uh, w- what they had done in the Constitutional Convention was uh, they just uh, somewhat arbitrarily set the original size of the House, uh, the House of Representatives and how many representatives each state would would get. Uh, and in fact, uh, they had a committee um, to, to do that. And one of the one of the one of the committee members uh, may have had some of the numbers that the Continental excuse me, the Articles of Confederation Congress had, although another member of the committee said, eh, we sort of just made it up, <laughs> more or less. I mean, he didn't say exactly that. Uh, and then it went out of committee and, so, and some states, com, uh, delegates of some states complained and they went back in and they gave, uh, I don't know, I think they gave Georgia one more, maybe North Carolina one more. They, they gave a couple, uh, you know, to, to the complaining states and everybody just said, okay, that's good. Uh, and, and, and so that's what's, what's in the constitution. It was, it was a very, uh, unscientific or maybe impressionistic part impressionistic and part, uh, you know, uh, politically expedient, uh, how they made up, how they actually made up, uh, the, the first Congress. Uh, and so what this, what that law in 1792 did, it expanded, uh, the house of representatives from, uh, 65 to 105, uh, and it's interesting uh, that the big winners were the big states, maybe partly because, uh, well, of course, they were growing, uh, but it, but it may be that their original uh, that the original estimation was was uh, too low. So Virginia nearly had its delegation doubled. Uh, Pennsylvania, more representatives. New York, um, but it does make me wonder uh, whether they were. Uh, uh, intentionally or, or just sort of inadvertently undercounted in the Constitutional Convention because of, of a lack of information. This may be the question that all historians dread, but also live for. Uh, why does this still matter today? Sure. Well, it, it matters. Uh, it, I think it matters in a, a couple of ways. I mean, one of the, the, the central one of the central things that, that we found uh, was that nobody really talked about, uh, no one at the time, and, and as far as we could find, no historians after, realized that, that counting free women and children, uh, as opposed to just counting, uh, in addition, you know, as, uh, as opposed to just free men in, in this context actually made a difference for representation. So, so it tells us a few things. One, it, it tells us that uh, the founders uh, were not omniscient. They were not perfect. They did all sorts of things. Uh, th- this among them that even they didn't uh, understand or, or conceive of what the ramifications were. They were certainly 
uh, not omniscient. Um, but I think it also really matters, you know, thinking about the Constitution itself. I mean, today uh, in America, we're, we're having these debates again about whom should be counted for the purpose of apportionment and, you know, to a, to a greater extent, you know, who's a, who's uh, so, so, so who should be counted? Should it be citizens? Should it be people eligible to be voters? Um, who, who really counts in, in the United States? And it seems to me that the constitution was, it turns out was clearer and actually a lot, I, I think we're realizing partly because of this article is it's, it's actually a lot more expansive and not just in a philosophical way, but also in a very practical way that in 1787, they said, let's count all free people, not based on property or voting rights or who can bear arms, but all free people. And then, of course, in, in, 18, in 1868, the, the second section of the 14th Amendment explicitly expanded that to include all people regardless of, of previous servitude. So, uh, of course, uh, formerly uh, people who, who had been enslaved. So, um, so it, it really suggests that, you know, we have this history of actually thinking about who belongs in this country, uh, that maybe is a lot more expansive, uh, than we realize. Andrew Shockett, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me and thanks for the great questions and thanks for everyone listening in to, uh, to be interested in American history and uh, for reading uh, the Journal of the American Revolution. The music played in this episode included works by Kevin McLeod and the Sturbridge Colonial Militia. Any unauthorized reproduction or use of this podcast without the express written permission of the Journal of the American Revolution is strictly prohibited. For everyone here at Dispatches, I'm Brady Kreitzer saying so long.